Amen. This morning we're going to be back in the Gospel of John, this ancient story about Jesus, what he said, what he did, and in particular, one of John's favorite things to talk about, stories about how people responded to Jesus. We've seen this already. We're going to see a lot more of this as we keep working through this book. One of John's favorite things to talk about is not, exa- not just what Jesus said and did, but, but how those who were around Jesus, those who saw him and heard him, responded to what he said and did. And, and today we get another account of a response to Jesus. Now what we've seen most recently, what we've seen earlier in chapter 3, which is where we're going to be today, is a sort of negative example of response to Jesus. Uh, we, we were told that Jesus was doing all sorts of miracles. People started to believe in him. But that Jesus did not trust himself in them because he knew what was in them. He knew that they were responding to him because they wanted what they thought Jesus could give them. They wanted the power. They wanted to be on the inside of something great. Not because they loved him or trusted him to deliver them from what they really needed, what they really feared. We saw Nicodemus, this story of, of Jesus meeting this uber-religious guy and telling him that even you need to be born again. Nicodemus didn't get it. There's another example of someone responding to Jesus' words, but in this case, a negative example. Now, what we have today is a positive example. Someone who's encountered Jesus' ministry and responds in exactly the way we should respond when we meet Jesus. What we have today is what you might call a model for what Christian life should be. A picture of the goal of the Christian life. What's called for from us when we meet with Jesus. But also what's possible in us when Jesus' power starts to change us. And, it's, and the goal, the, the, the model here, is in John the Baptist. We've already seen him once. He came up earlier back in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. Uh, then he comes up again here. As this guy who is attached to Jesus, who, uh, who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. But who in this case actually becomes a model to us of how to respond to Jesus. Um, what I want to do is read this story and then a little section after the story where John, the author of the gospel, different John from the one we're talking about today, where John, the author of the gospel, reflects on what's happened with John the Baptist. Um, what we want to do is, because the, the, the text breaks down into these two sections. One is the story, one is this sort of commentary on the story. What we want to do is, is take a pass over both sections um, two times. I want to come, back, come over it two times. The first time, I, what I want to do is, I want to, I want to try to identify, if we can, the principles that John the author would have us to get from this story about John the Baptist. And there's a reason that he put it here. Everything in this whole book, we've been told already, is put here so that we could believe that Jesus really is the Christ, that he, could, that, that he can deliver us if we trust in him. So there's something about this story of John the Baptist that John the author of this gospel wants us to get that will help us to trust in Jesus. And I want to I take one pass where all, I do, all I'm trying to do is identify what those things are, what we're supposed to take from it. This is a, th- th- what I'm going to call this section, that first pass, is the scope of John's vision. So if John's vision of the world and of, G- and of the world through Jesus is presented here to us as a model, we want to understand what it is that shapes his vision, the scope of it, the principles that, that identify what he's looking through when he looks at Jesus and at himself in light of Jesus. So that's the first pass. Then I want to come back through the same text, take a second pass, and try to tease out what it would look like for us to take on John's vision as our own. The power that's in John's vision to reshape the way we see ourselves and our place in this world. So three principles that give us the scope of John's vision, and then we're going to take a second pass through it and identify three implications for us 
that help us connect with the power in John's vision. Hopefully that makes sense. That's where we're going to try to attack this passage this morning. I want to begin by reading it for you. Uh, we're going to read John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. And uh, hopefully you have found that in your Bible. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we have Bibles that are provided for you at the, the center of each aisle. We'd love for you to take that with you. Um, this passage is in, in John chapter 3, which is in basically the last quarter of the Bible. If you're unfamiliar with it, just flip over there. You should start to see it at the top of the page. Or if there's someone sitting around you, I'm sure they'd be happy to help you find it. Now, hopefully you found it. Let's stand together in honor of God's word and we'll read it together. This is John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Selim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Jesus an- or John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I'm going to start with the scope of John's vision. Three principles that I want to tease out of this passage that we've just read together that I think sort of provide the frame through which John looks at everything. The setting for this story has moved from Jerusalem. That's where the last action we've covered was, was happening in the, the holy city of the people of Israel where the Passover feast was happening. Jesus kind of comes on the scene there, does some teaching and some miracles there. Now they've moved out into the boonies, out somewhere in the Judean countryside where there was plenty of water for them to do some baptizing. But here's the thing. It wasn't just Jesus and his disciples that were baptizing out there. There was another act in town. John and his disciples were also out there. They were also baptizing. And John's followers come to John with an all-too-human response to the fact that John is no longer the only show in town. John's followers come to John to complain. There's so much written into the way that they frame their complaint. 
Notice how they refer to Jesus. They don't use his name. Jesus for them is the one, the one who was with you, John. The one to whom you bore witness, John. Jesus for them doesn't have his own identity. There's no name. Jesus matters because of his connection to John. Remember the guy you introduced to the world on the other side of the Jordan, John? Remember that guy that you plucked out of obscurity, that you marked as a man of significance? Remember that guy? He's taking all of your followers. Even their exaggeration makes their frustration come through clearly. All are going to him. Everyone's going to him. Clearly, that's not true. John, we're told right here that John's out there baptizing. Plenty of people are coming to John. His followers don't see it that way. Everybody's going to Jesus. Think of it like John is as, as an established, well-known, famous musical act. Jesus as the guy that he chooses to open for him on tour. And you know that a band who opens for a famous band on tour is known as the band who opens for the famous band, Right? They're known, they're defined by their connection to this more famous entity. And that was what John was. He had built up this huge following. He was famous. And now he is is fading. And Jesus' star is rising. And this, this makes John's followers' response perfectly natural. They had kind of staked themselves to John too. They were identified with John's significance, his fame. They see themselves fading along with him. It's what makes John's response radically unnatural. Because John's response to them, well, let's just look at it. John answered them, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, it would have been big of John. It would have been big of John if he had... It would have been natural of John is for, for him to respond just like his followers did. And this guy is only here because I made him who he is. And now people are going to him. That would have been the natural response. A really big, humble response would have been for him to say, you know what, there's room for both of us, right? This is a big countryside, lots of water, plenty of people that need to be baptized, like one band allowing for the fact that another band has, has sort of made its mark and is here now, but there's plenty of room for us on iTunes, right? But now, John goes even further than that. What he says is not just that there's room for both of us, but that, me, that, that I, everything good in me, every gift that I have ever received came from him. Anything good in me is not about me. It's about the one who has given me everything that I have. That's the way I read that first response. That's the first principle I want to draw out. I read it, I mean, there's a sense in which John may have been talking about Jesus, that we shouldn't get upset that he's sort of taking off here because he couldn't have the success unless God had given it to him. That may be there. But, but in the context, it really seems like he's trying to explain to his followers why he's not upset context here is more about John. So what John is saying is that everything I have, anything that I might use to sort of establish myself, isn't 
about me anyway. It came as a gift from heaven, from the same place that this guy has come. I've testified to him as the one who comes from above. See, what, what we see here is, is John turning on its head everything that would be natural in each of us. Behind every one of our desires to be noticed for something, to be acknowledged as responsible for something, every, every ounce of superiority that we ever feel towards anyone else, where that comes from is a sense that what's good in us, well, we're responsible for that. We've got plenty of excuses to explain away what's bad in us, right? We're all about trying to explain that stuff away as just a product of our circumstances or you know, having a bad day or whatever. But what's good in us, well, that we want responsibility for. Every time, every time we compare ourselves to each other, that's what we're showing. John is dead to that. God has given every good gift, so what I have, whatever's good about me, is not mine to emphasize. It's not mine to celebrate. It's not mine to protect or to promote. And it's not for me to seek more than what I've been given. That's the first principle. The scope of John's vision is defined by his belief that everything he has comes from God. Not about him. And here's the second principle. The second principle comes out when John introduces an analogy to explain his view of the situation. His analogy uh, is, is, takes us back to the language of the bride and the bridegroom that we came across in chapter 2. So here's what he says. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And just in case it isn't clear on the surface what he's saying here, so the, the bride here is the people that Jesus came for. Okay? God's people. Israel and everyone else who believes through Christ. That's the bride. The bridegroom is Jesus. And the friend of the bride, which is like our best man, or excuse me, the friend of the bridegroom, which is kind of like our best man in, in our culture today, that's John the Baptist. And what he's saying here, what he's saying is that he, John the Baptist, friend of the bridegroom, he was never looking for the bride. He wasn't working on his own wedding here. He was looking to set Jesus up. He may have set up Jesus and Jesus' bride. He may be the one who made the introduction. But John himself was never after the girl. His greatest joy, this is what he's saying, his greatest joy is in the joy of the groom and his bride. Think about it. I mean, the, the best man analogy works really well even in our own culture. So traditionally, the best man is the one who puts together a lot of the details for the wedding. So, so as I heard one person observe uh, unpacking this text, really the, the focus is on the best man for a lot of the, a lot of the lead up to the wedding. The guy who, he's the guy who pulls together the, the bachelor party. You know, he's probably sending out the emails, coordinating all the details. The, the rehearsal, he's probably the one who starts off the toasting. You know, he's the one who's supposed to make a toast. The spotlight is on him for a while. But then when the bride comes down the aisle, well, he takes a step back, right? And the focus, even his own focus, is not on him 
and what he's done to set things up, but is on the bride and her beauty and the groom and his joy as they come together. And John is saying, John is saying his joy is complete because the groom and the bride have now come together. In other words, here, let's put another spin on it. In other words, John is saying that he genuinely, in his soul, what he wants is to see people connect to Jesus. His whole ministry was about seeing people connect to Jesus. So here's the principle. The first principle was, all I have, not about me, it's a gift that I've been given from God. So anything good in me is not for me to celebrate, promote, or protect. It's about God. Here's principle number two. All that I want, all that I pursue with my life, my whole ambition is not about me, but all about God and what he's doing through Christ. John is saying that these people who were his life's work, think about this guy, preparing for his ministry for his entire life, giving all of himself to it, laying his life on the line soon to be killed for his ministry. These people who had come to him, these are his life's work. And now they're going somewhere else. But what he's saying is that his whole life's work was not about himself, but all about Jesus. That's what explains his amazing statement. One of the great statements in all of this gospel, verse 30. He must increase, and I must decrease. Don't hear in that the language of inevitability, of John just sort of saying, you know, I can't do anything about it. He's got more charisma than me. I mean, he's God's son. He's got power. What am I going to do? He must increase. That's not the way it should read. No, no, think about John with everything that he has done his, in all of his life, with what he daydreams about, with what he lies at at night in his bed trying to go to sleep, thinking about is that Jesus must increase. Whatever it takes, he's got to increase. That means I've got to decrease, not about me. All that I have and all that I'm doing with my life, all about him. He must increase, I must decrease. And here's the last principle. That was the first two. Here's the last one. The last one comes out in that next section which isn't John the Baptist here. This is John who wrote the gospel, sort of looking at this story and back over the whole chapter even and reflecting a bit, sort of summarizing some of the themes that we've already seen. A lot of of this language, if you've been here with us through, through the study so far, a lot of it should seem pretty familiar. It's a chap, the whole chapter has been about what it is to have true faith in Jesus, to really receive him, to get what he's about. And you can see some of the themes coming back up again in in the verses that we read from verse 31 to 36. There's themes like Jesus as the one who comes from heaven, from above, who's given the Spirit without measure so that when he speaks, his words are God's words. You're hearing directly from God himself. Themes like Jesus as the one to whom God has given all things. He is the one for whom the world exists in all of its beauty and diversity. He's the whole point. Think back to chapter 1 about him as the word through whom everything comes into being without whom nothing exists that exists now. It's all about Jesus. But all of this, all of these details should seem pretty familiar to you. What you need to know about this section is that they're all building towards the last verse. 
Here's the payoff. If, if Jesus and all that he is and all that he does, if Jesus is everything, then from our perspective, what matters most is whether or not we receive his testimony. Whether or not we receive him. Verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Everything builds to this summary. The main reason that John the Baptist is so laser-focused on Jesus and on making sure that Jesus comes out clear, that people attach to Jesus and not to John, the whole reason behind Jesus' scope that is defined by Christ and Him increasing is that John knows, John the Baptist knows, what John the Gospel writer is telling us now, that unless we attach to Jesus, all of us are without hope. That there is life in Him and only in Him. Whoever has the Son, whoever sees Jesus and is drawn in by Him, who hears His testimony and says, yes, there is life in that. I can stake myself to that. To those people, Jesus gives eternal life. To everyone else, well, we get what we ask for. To those who reject His testimony and believe that we can do better on our own. To those who refuse to acknowledge what John the Baptist has acknowledged, that everything good in us is just a gift from God. To those who think that what's good in them is enough to establish them and give them hope, as opposed to just a shadow of what God wants to give them. Well, to all of those who want to live as if God isn't there, in other words. To what all of us were. To those, the wrath of God remains on them. And apart from Jesus, no amount of personal charisma, no amount of powerful rhetoric, no amount of remarkable moral character is going to help anybody to avoid what they deserve. John is all about Jesus because of this third principle. The difference between life and death rests on faith in Jesus. Here's your three principles. All that I have, John says, is a gift from God, so not about me. All that I want for my life is about God, not about me, about promoting Jesus. And the reason that, that I'm not hung up on what I have and don't have, or what I might or might not obtain with my life, is that I know my only hope and the only hope of anyone who ever hears the sound of my voice is that Jesus is for us. To receive him is to have life. To reject him is to know death. Those are the three principles that define John's vision. What I want to do with what time we have left is try to unpack the power of this vision for shaping us and how we interact with our world. There's tremendous power in it if we can take John's vision as ours. If we can see ourselves the way John saw himself. If we can see the point of our lives in the same way that John saw the point of his life. There is incredible power here because to see him, to see Jesus, 
And to see ourselves as John did is to be transformed. This is the key. This is the key to living a meaningful and joyful and eternal life. It's the key to overcoming the fear and the pride and the insecurity that hold us back. What I want to do is point out three implications from this same passage we've already read and started to unpack a little bit. I want to go back over it, pull out three implications for us from John's vision. Here's the first one. What is the power of John's vision if we were to take it as our own? Here first is this. There is power here to recognize the mortal danger of our self-centeredness. I want to start with where we finished in our three principles. There's power in John's vision for us to recognize the mortal danger in our self-centeredness. And we come preloaded, all of us, with a tendency to view everything mostly in light of how we're affected by it. People, circumstances, all of it is about us, primarily. That's the way we come preloaded. We're preloaded also to seek our interests, first and foremost. Above anything else, we're about our own interests. To make things about us is what comes natural to us. Now, just taking the gist of John's situation here, John the Baptist... Don't we all really, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm the one who identifies with his followers. I'm guessing surely more of you do as well. When I read this story, I'm with the followers. Like when, I th- when I put myself in John's place, something else seems to be getting more attention than I am. Something else is getting more credit than the work that I'm doing. My default reaction is to want to be acknowledged, to be noticed. I want the credit that comes from from doing well. I want to be celebrated for who I am and for what I'm doing. Now what this passage suggests is not, it, it, this passage, the weight of it is not just to sort of slap us on the wrist and say, you shouldn't be like that, you should care more about other people. We should, but that's not the point. The point here is even greater than that. The point here is to sort of tear the blinders off our eyes so that we see this self-centered instinct in us for what it is. It is an instinct that leads to death. Because every time we want to crowd out Christ, every time we want to be acknowledged for something known for, defined by our work or our goodness in the eyes of other people, every time that instinct shows itself, what we're seeing is an instinct to justify ourselves. What we want to do is is sort of be responsible for how we matter in this world. We're all sort of prone, whether we, whether we put these categories on it or not, we're all sort of prone to thinking about why we're here, about why we matter. We're all prone to want to justify our existence, right? I want things to be different because I was here. That's a very natural thing to do. It's an appropriate thing to do in one sense. But here's the danger The danger to us is that we want to define the terms on which we matter. We want to matter because of what we have to offer, because of what we have done. We want others to see and notice us. That's what our heart wants. What we need to to take from this passage is a new set of vocabulary for understanding what we're doing. Anytime we wish we were noticed for something, then we haven't been. What we're doing is trying to crowd Jesus out. 
what we're doing is trying to justify ourselves. And here's the reality. There is nothing that we can do. There is no amount of approval from other people that we can win that would be able to keep us from death or to win the approval of God. Our instinct to promote ourselves is an instinct to do without Jesus. And that, therefore it is an instinct that leads to death. It's dangerous to ourselves and it's also dangerous to other people. Because one of the things we're trying to do and trying to get other people to notice, give us credit for things, I mean, one way to think about that is we want them attached to us. We want them looking to us. Relying on us. The end game for us, if we take on John's perspective, isn't just being there for other people or being someone that other people can depend on so much as it's getting other people to Jesus. We want them looking past us and even through us to Christ. And, and to whatever extent we want them to notice us and be pleased with what we are and what we've done, we're distracting them from Jesus who is the only one who can save them. We are not just a danger to ourselves, we're a danger to them. John's vision, if we take it on, has the power to show us the mortal danger in our self-centeredness. That eternal life and death hang in the balance when we decide who it is we're going to identify with. Ourselves, what we do, what we have, or Christ and what he has done and what he offers to us. Only in Jesus is life and redemption and forgiveness and peace. That's the first implication. Second thing, John's vision, the scope of his vision, has the power to reframe or redirect our thinking. And here's what I mean. Let me get personal here. This mantra that John uses in, in verse 30, he must increase but I must decrease, has, has really landed with me in the last few months. It all started back in the fall I was reading ahead to try to get ready for the, 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 the John series. I try to get ready for the whole thing at once, at first, kind of map it out where it's going to go. So I was reading it, and at the same time, I was in a particular period, a period of particular personal dryness, spiritually, just sort of dissatisfaction with my performance at work, just feeling kind of overall like a failure in that season. It sort of comes and goes, just like with anybody else. And I remember that even, even in my sermon prep for the sermons I was delivering during the fall, while I'm reading this to get ready for John, every week I'm just feeling, I'm just not feeling it, right? It's just not there. I got no creativity, no insight, no joy in what it is that I'm saying. And that, that brings a lot of stress, especially when I'm, when I'm like running, coming down the line trying to get the, the sermon written and I'm just sort of staring at the wall or sometimes quite literally beating my head on my desk. I have done that. Not too hard, but you know, just sort of perfect. And I remember having one of those days, and, and, and kind of on the back end of a lot of those days, which is no matter what your job is, it's not unique to, to preaching for a living. It, no matter what your job is, surely you know what it is to be sort of spent, just to be out, and it's not feel like you're doing anything that matters. Some, for some reason, this verse just leaped off the page and screamed at me when I came across it. And it just hit me that the reason I'm so stressed, I'm so hung up on whether or not these sermons are any good, is that I want people to notice me. And John's message screams at me that Jesus is the point. 
He must increase. And for him to increase means I've got to decrease, which means I've just got to learn to live with being mediocre and be not just okay with that, but to love that. To, if, if my mediocrity is a way for people to see the supremacy of Jesus, then it's, then it's, it's beautiful. And I think that if we can connect with this verse and sort of work it into wherever it is that you are, there's a power here to reframe the way you think about the world and your place in it. What I did was I just wrote it on a sticky note. He must increase. I must decrease. Stuck it right under my computer. The computer where I sit on Thursdays trying to hammer out sermon manuscripts, stressed about how people are going to receive them. The same computer where I write emails that are really challenging, sometimes about difficult situations, where I'm tempted to protect myself, promote myself. The same computer where I'm tempted to waste time, especially when I don't think the sermon's going very well. John's mantra amounts to making yourself and your work the sum of your whole life. It's all about Jesus. To aim yourself at serving him, at celebrating him, at attaching yourself and other people more closely to him. Now, imagine the ripple effects through your life if you took on verse 30 as your personal mantra. What would happen if you took a stack of post-it notes and wrote that on them? He must increase, I must decrease on each one and stuck them all around. Let's say you put one on your computer screen. The screen where you're sometimes tempted to indulge in shopping that you don't, for things that you probably don't need. The same screen where you're tempted to covet the lives of other people on social media. The same screen where you're tempted to spruce up your CV. It's got to be spruced up, but come on. Sometimes don't you just love the way it feels to add a new line? You ever just sit there and look at it? What if your screen told you he must increase, I must decrease? doesn't mean you don't need a CV. It changes the way you feel about it, though, doesn't it? What if you wrote it in a Sharpie on your debit card? So every time you went to flash it, you were reminded he must increase, I must decrease. What if you memorized the verse and you learned to recall it every time you're disappointed by somebody else? How might this verse change what you expect from other people? We're only scratching the surface so far. How might this verse affect what kind of career you'd be happy with? He must increase. I must decrease. What effects on your relationships if your perspective was that of John? What if parents, what if your parenting was not about you, not about me? And how awesome we are at raising kids or how horrible we are at raising kids but about Jesus what if our mantra was he must increase in the lives of my children I must decrease now I'm not suggesting that that the answers to that question so if, if you take this, this mantra and, and pose it as a question about the situations you encounter about what you feel as you go through life, if you, if you take a hard situation and ask of it, 
he, what does it mean that he must increase and I must decrease in this situation? I'm not saying that the answers will always be obvious. Just writing that on your debit card doesn't tell you what a Christ-centered purchase looks like. I mean, sometimes you do need a pair of new shoes, right? I'm not saying it makes it obvious. I'm saying it needs to be part of the equation. I'm saying all that we do and all that we are needs to go through that grid. He must increase. I must decrease. It has to be part of the, part of the way we shape our target for our lives. And here's my practical recommendation to you. The answers aren't always going to be clear. But the question needs to be asked. And, and my recommendation is, you need to ask this question in community with other people. So when you're facing a hard situation interpersonally, or when you're, uh, maybe when you're, you're facing a decision at work that has to be made that's, that's hard, or when you're struggling because you, you, because you feel like you failed, I would encourage you to get with a brother or a sister in Christ, describe the situation to them, and not merely look for empathy from them. That's partly what we do when we, when we talk about what's hard in our lives. But ask them to help you push through to a next level here. Say, what do you think, based on what you've seen, what do you think it would mean in this situation for Jesus to increase and for me to decrease? I'm not saying the answers will be easy. I'm saying we've got to ask the question, and it makes sense to ask it together. Here's the last thing. The last, the last implication of John's vision, the power that's in it, if we were to take it on as our own. There's power to maximize our joy. There's power to maximize our joy. So there's power to recognize the mortal danger of our self-centeredness. There's power to then reframe our thinking Right, so that we see things through John's grid. We encounter our circumstances, what's hard, what's joyful in light of, of him. Then there, third, there's power to maximize our joy. Now the reason this matters is that so far, what we said, it could sound a little bit ascetic, right? Like our lives are meant to be empty while we wait for Jesus. It, it could sound like we're, that, that being all about Jesus means sort of constantly denying yourself And it could sound very anti-joy. But nothing is further from the truth. Several of the details in this passage point it out. The very end, even here, even in verse 36, the promise that those who believe in the Son have eternal life. The commentators that I read, the New Testament scholars who do this for a living, they all teased out the fact that in that verse, the has eternal life phrase is written in a way to emphasize that you've got it already. That it's not just what you will have, it's true that it will go on forever, but that it's a certain quality of life that you already possess. It's a life that's of a different, on, a different, uh, on a different scale, a different quality of experience than what you would have otherwise. To believe in Christ is to have it now, what's going to define you forever. And I think John the Baptist in this story is a test case of what that looks like. So think about this guy. From the surface, he looks like a guy who's pursuing a sort of self-denial, ascetic lifestyle. We talked a little bit about this when we looked at him back in chapter 1. He's a guy who lives out in the desert. He wears really uncomfortable clothing. He eats disgusting foods. He is a man who looks like a model of self-denial, almost for its own sake. Not only that, he is a man who, 
who has seen his life's work building up a following by the message that he has given himself to proclaiming with all that he is and all that he has. He's seen that life's work start to fade, start to fizzle out. His time has come and now it's going. And he is only months away from literally having his life snuffed out, from having his head cut off and served on a platter. And this is the man. This is the man who says, this joy of mine is now complete. I think I can name the reason. How could John live the way he did and then see everything he had done start to fade away and probably by this time know that he wasn't long for this world and say, this joy of mine is now complete. Here's, how, here's, what, I think, here's what I think it means. What often keeps our joy in check what keeps us from fully enjoying the good things in our lives is our disappointment in the things that we love. So most anything that we love is limited, right? And one of the things that makes it so hard to enjoy it for what it is is that we get preoccupied by what it isn't. Friends aren't always there for us as we wish they were. Work isn't always as excellent as we'd like it to be. The reason we take the deficit so hard, if you take this thing that's a good thing, you're preoccupied by what it isn't, the reason we take the deficit so hard all too often is that we want too much from it. That we're resting on it more fully than we need to. And if we need it to hold us up, whatever this good thing is, then we're always going to be preoccupied by the weaknesses in it. We're going to be preoccupied by the half-empty side of that glass. We'll always be disappointed and we'll always be overprotective of what we do have. Unwilling, not freed up to give ourselves away. But, but when Jesus satisfies us, when our life is ultimately about him, when we weigh the things that we enjoy based on how, how well they clarify him and all of his sweetness, then the half full side of whatever it is that we love becomes all the sweeter. It becomes like icing on the cake. We get to enjoy it for what it is and not for what it isn't. We get to know John's freedom, his completed joy, where even the things we love can be taken away from us and as long as we have Christ, we are okay. I think that's what this passage is getting at, what John, the author of the gospel, is getting at when he says, whoever receives his testimony, testimony about Jesus as the stream of living water that when you drink from him, you'll thirst no more, testimony about Jesus as the lamb of, the, of God who takes away the sins of the world, when you receive his testimony, well, it changes things. And what's the, the changes in you from this testimony, John describes that, that, that this person who claims it and lives from it sets his seal to this, that God is true. Another way to say it is that this person certifies 
from his life, from his faith, from the way that Jesus' testimony holds him up. He certifies from that that God can be trusted, that the promises are true. Our enjoyment of life that's given in Christ is a certification to the world of the trustworthiness of Jesus. It certifies our satisfaction in Him and in all that He offers to us. So I think the question that we've got to sit with, the one we've got to leave thinking on, is what is your life certifying? What is your life right now certifying to those who know you? Our Father, your promises are rich and they are sweet and we want them to be true. Often it's hard for us to believe in them, certainly hard for us to live in light of them. So having heard your word, what we pray for is the power of your spirit to receive this testimony, to see Jesus in the way that he's been taught to us here and to follow John's footsteps in faith. We want to say with John that he must increase and we must decrease and to find joy in that, not a kind of death, but a kind of life in it that frees us up, that frees us from the ups and downs of this world that frees us to give ourselves to each other and to give our lives to pointing each other towards Jesus. We want that freedom. We know that it comes as your spirit gives us the ability to believe your promises and gives us a taste of their truthfulness. So, Father, give us that by your word today. We know there is life in the Son. Give us a taste of it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.